0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory, Glory to, you, to you, Lord Christ. Christ. And Jesus taught them, saying, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I, te- for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ.
1: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my God, and my Redeemer. Amen. In HBO's hit show, The Sopranos, Tony Soprano is a mob boss who's been having panic attacks. And so he starts going to therapy. Throughout the seasons of this show, human nature is on display in an alarming way as you watch Tony and those closest to him face choice after choice and be given chance after chance to make a moral choice. But time after time, Tony does what's expedient, what's good for business. But then he goes to his therapist, and it's in these sessions that you see a man wrestling with immense guilt. And he ends up doing what most of us do most of the time. He begins to justify himself. Late in the show, there's an episode where Tony's nephew, Christopher, is in critical condition after being in a car accident. Christopher is sort of Tony's heir apparent. He's the son that he never really had. Tony's own son isn't really interested in the family business, so to speak. So Tony is pretty shaken up over Christopher's accident, and he's in his therapist's office talking about it. And he tells her that Christopher claimed to have had a near-death experience where he was sent to hell and told that he would be back permanently. Do you think he's going to hell? The therapist asks Tony. Of course not. Tony goes off on who he thinks really deserves. go to hell. And the therapist says, what about you? At this point, Tony is angry. I'll spare you my impersonation. But this is what he says. We're soldiers. Soldiers don't go to hell. It's war. Soldiers kill other soldiers. We're in a situation where everyone involved knows the stakes. And if you're going to accept those stakes, you've got to do certain things. It's business. And He then goes on a tirade about how the Italian immigrants were stuck under the boot of the rich American tycoons and some of them refused to stay there, people like himself. What you know about Tony in watching the show is that he is a serial adulterer, he is a murderer, he is a thief. He threatens, bullies, extorts, bribes, and he justifies all of his actions based on his own definition of himself. He is a soldier, making his own way, just like the American dream taught him. The bad news is that we all do this. Our entire life projects, in in some sense, can, can be reduced down to this attempt to give ourselves definition so that we can give ourselves justification. If we can control the parameters of what we are and who we are, then we can justify what we do. We may be workaholics, but we tell ourselves we're just providing for our family. We may be mired in greed, but we've long ago been convinced that our money is ours and we have no responsibility toward others. In The Sopranos, Tony's wife, Carmela also reveals something to us about ourselves. This woman has been wronged, often and repeatedly by her husband, Tony, but she doesn't leave. But she doesn't stay simply because of fear. She stays mostly because she likes her standard of living. At one point, she and Tony are arguing about something, and she invokes Roman Catholic tradition, and Tony shouts back, you're only religious when it suits you. bring this up simply to point out that we all do these things. We all try to define ourselves and to use everything within our grasp, including religion, to justify ourselves rather than be justified by God. And we're all inconsistent, even in the laws that we create. The Christian story, of course, cuts right across this tendency. It tells us that our attempt at self-definition is the very heart of why we remain unjustified. That in attempting to name ourselves, we have set ourselves up as God, asking him to go away quietly, please. We can handle this on our own. And what has resulted? A world torn apart by racism, greed, and violence. But if we draw the parameters just so we can convince ourselves that For us here in Portland, this has nothing really to do with us. We can point the finger at the evil people over there or over there, but not in here. right? Except that as Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously wrote, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. You see, in the temple of self, all sacrifices are to be made in our honor, made to salve our own conscience, to bring glory and fulfillment to our own fragile egos, regardless of the cost. This is the way the world works. And in the midst of this world comes a poor, homeless rabbi living out his days in obscurity under the occupation of the Roman Empire, the greatest world power ever known. And he is declaring an alternate kingdom. The kingdom of God. A completely different way of being human in the world. And Matthew who wrote our Gospel text this evening, has been at work convincing us that this lowly traveling man is actually God incarnate. So it will not do to take some of his words seriously but not others, because in St. Matthew's tale of Jesus, it runs from the end to the beginning. This is the person who rose from the dead. When he talks, we listen what we heard him say last week was that it's the ones that we would not expect that are actually blessed, that actually have God's favor, who inherit God's kingdom. It's not the powerful and the rich and the suave, it's the poor, the meek, and the outcast, who rise up in a power not their own, and not for their own empowerment, but to help others in need, only to find themselves being persecuted for their efforts. And what we have to realize is that the Kingdom of Christ and the kingdoms of this world are locked in a head-on collision. There is no avoiding it. And what Jesus tells his followers in this Sermon on the Mount can basically be summed up into two things. Be what you are and know your telos. Know where you're going. And this is really the main theological tension of the entire New Testament, that Christianity is both ontological. It's about our being it's about faith and it's teleological it's about duty it's about a goal it's about where we're going it's both passive and active it's about receiving and doing it's about faith and works being and acting and this is how Jesus defines his followers he has just said Blessed are you, follower of mine, when people revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you on account of me. And then he says this, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And Before we go any further, notice again the base of grace. In the symphony of Christ's kingdom proclamation, the theme, the melody, is always Grace. Always. What he tells us is, I make you what you are because I love you. Not because of what you've done, simply because I love you. Notice it's not a command to be salt, it's a statement of fact. If you're a follower of Christ, you are salt. You're not commanded to be a light, you are the light. Just like the first four Beatitudes we looked at last week. This has to do with who you are and how you act only secondarily, because it is God who comes first to you and remakes you into these things, makes you a follower, makes you salt and light. But even as Jesus is telling his followers what they are, he is also telling them what their purpose is, their telos, their goal. He's telling them about essential being and ultimate purpose. We'll take each of these metaphors, salt and light, one at a time as we try to understand what Jesus is telling us. You are the salt of the earth, he says. Salt is a necessity. As one Roman emperor said, mankind can live without gold, but not without salt. The history of salt is a history of conquest and wealth, quite literally. This is how empires are born and made, is through the salt trade. Salt is such a necessity of everyday life, and it was especially so before the days of refrigeration. Salt is a seasoning, of course. It makes food taste better. It's also a preservative. It keeps meat and other things from decaying, and it's also a means of purification. Salt was used in the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Today we use saline pools, same idea. It cleanses things. But interestingly, salt can also kill. In ancient times, armies would salt the fields of their enemies to kill off the crops, cutting off their food supply. To salt the earth in this sense is to lay it waste. So in what way are followers of Jesus the salt of the earth? I think in some sense it's, it's a complexity of all of them. As the locus point of God's activity in the world and as the dwelling place of his spirit and his kingdom, the followers of Jesus flavor the earth. They make the world more appealing through the seasoning of their spirit-filled lives. But more than that, followers of Jesus are in their being and in their telos, their purpose, agents that stop decay, The greed, violence, and selfishness of the world are all symptoms and causes of decay in every sense. In our greed, we have depleted natural resources, polluted farmland and water tables. In our selfish ambition and violence, we have laid waste to entire cities and civilizations. And the presence of followers of Jesus on the earth is such that it should at least slow the death and decay that the world has been mired in that is in this sense that salt acts as a killer as well. If the fruit of this type of world is greed and murder and death, then the armies of Jesus go about salting the fields of the world, killing off their so-called fruit. Peter Lighthart put it this way, we might naively hope That the world would welcome salt-of-the-earth types who are committed to reconciliation, faithfulness, truth-telling, love, and piety. But some worlds are built on vengeance, lust, and hatred. Some churches are energized by hostility toward other churches. Some religions turn piety into an honor competition. Such religions and worlds naturally see serious Christians as a threat to their way of life because Christians are a threat to their way of life. Where mutual hatred determines the structure of social life, lovers are dangerous. Anyone who reaches across the barricades to bless an enemy is tampering with the way the world is and ought to be. In a world such as ours, where virtually every sexual desire demands respect, disciples who urge the lustful to pluck out their lecherous eyes aren't just prudes, but dangerous prudes. In a world of lies, truth-tellers must be silenced. It's no accident that Jesus calls his disciples salt of the earth just after telling them that they should expect to be persecuted. Notice that in each of these ways of being salt is to be of a different order. Salt as a seasoning doesn't work if it becomes exactly like the thing it's supposed to be seasoning. If the salt on your potato chip just becomes more potato chip, it's going to taste worse. Right? If salt became just like the meat it is seeking to preserve from decay, it would be worthless. And all of it would be subject to decay and death, which is to say followers of Jesus must be different. This is where you have to know your telos, your ultimate purpose in the world. Because if you fail to keep becoming that which you are in Christ, Jesus tells us, you were as worthless as salt that has lost its saltiness, never able to be made salty again. And in pretty harrowing terms, in a phrase that sounds very much like eschatological end of the world judgment, he says, if this is you, you will be thrown out and trampled underfoot. salt, even as a flavor, is biting and sharp. Helmut Thieleke, who's a German theologian, put it this way. To look at some Christians, one would think that their ambition is to be the honeypot of the world. They sweeten and sugar the bitterness of life with an all-too-easy conception of a loving God. But Jesus, of course, did not say, you are the honey of the world. He said, you are the salt of the earth. Salt bites And the unadulterated message of the judgment and grace of God has always been a biting thing. Grace stings like medicine because it tells us that we are not making it on our own. That's what it means to be salt of the earth. As the ministry of Jesus shows, the love and mercy of God are for all people. It does not matter what you have done or who you have been. His love and mercy and grace are for you. Christ takes murderers, people who persecuted his own church, and turns them into apostles and bishops in the church. His grace and mercy are for all people, and the only ones who don't get it are the ones who think they don't need it. And so it is not the job of the church to lull people to sleep. The job of the church is to say in love, as Saint Tikhon did: "Above you is the sword of truth; under you is hell, which is ready to devour you; in front of you is death; behind you is the multitude of your sins. On your right hand and on your left are crowds of malicious enemies. Do you wish to stay in carelessness? To be salt." is to wake up the taste buds of the world around us, to start to taste the true beauty of God's mercy and grace and love. You are the salt of the earth. And you are the light of the world. To be called the light of the world is to be called godlike. Most often throughout scripture, light or fire is the manifestation of the divine presence. God is the very source of light. Ancient Christians referred to him as the uncreated light. We still sing hymns by that name. To be the light of the world is to be a reflection of the burning love of God. Notice in verse 16, Jesus tells his followers to do their good works so that others can see them and glorify their Father in heaven. But later in this same sermon, he warns against doing anything in view of other people. In fact, to not even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So what's going on? Well, to be a light is to reveal something other than yourself. Nobody turns on a light to stare at the light. You turn on a light to see other things. The good works which Jesus is going to extrapolate for us in the following verses in this Sermon on the Mount are to be done in such a manner that people see the works and not us. That they glorify God and not us. It's not even about feeling better about ourselves. These these are all good byproducts. It's about showing the glory of God like a mirror in front of a fire. Charles Spurgeon used to say, the world doesn't read Bibles, it reads Christians. What are people reading when they look at your life? The things that we do and say are to be reflections as the moon to the sun of what our Father does and says in his love and mercy and grace. And in order to do this, you cannot be hidden under a basket. You cannot be a secret city in a valley. You're put on a lampstand. This is a throwback to the temple. The priest would come in and light the lamp of God's presence. You're not just the temple of God's dwelling, you're the representation of his presence in the world. You're to be a city on a hill, a throwback to Jerusalem, the very city of God. The light of God's presence is no longer contained to Israel's temple or capital. God's presence is burning throughout the world in those who follow Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. It is to be a disciple of Christ. It is to be set on fire with the love of God and to give all of yourself to him, and in so doing, give all of yourself to the world in love. Difficult? Yeah. Impossible, actually, apart from the grace of God and the empowerment of his Holy Spirit. Worth it? Absolutely once you have been empowered by the Spirit, once you have dwelled in the light and of Jesus' mercy and love, how could you ever go back to live in darkness?